0: Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Jay, son, worship team. Good morning or morning. I don't know if it's good or not, but it's good to see you. I'm glad you're here. I hope you're doing well. Um, either way, I'm glad you're here. Um, hopefully you're, you're good. And if, if that's not where you are, that's OK. Uh, we're glad that you're here uh, to be around God's people. But more importantly, just to encounter the presence of God in a way uh, that can give life and give hope and bring healing into our lives, And so we're going to be in John 19, as uh, Daniel just read. If you want to turn there, you can go ahead and do that. Um, as you're turning there, just a quick uh, kind of just celebration of God's goodness. If you were here this past Wednesday night on campus, it was just a really exciting time because um, we're beginning to open up more and more things across the campus. Um, we didn't have our nursery and toddlers open yet. We're still um, looking for enough volunteers to do that. But besides that, the entire campus was open. And if you were here, it was just like it came to life. Uh, we had kids and kids men. We had students in the student center. The new, we just opened the new student center. And then we had our adults in here. And then afterwards, just out in the commons area, you could just like, you, could, like, you could just almost kind of just feel um, the presence of fellowship and the presence of the Lord in, on the campus. So it was an exciting Wednesday. Um, if you didn't make it, um, th- that's okay. We were going to d- keep doing the adult portion once a month. Kids and students will meet every Wednesday night. Um, but also want to let you know, we have opened up our student center on Sunday morning, since that's what Daniel was just talking about. So for 6th through 12th grade, um, there's op- there are options available to you and your family, depending on what works best for you. Um, a lot of families who have 6th through 12th graders like for them to be in the service with them. That's perfect. We love that. We support that. Um, But there are also 6th through 12th graders that that would be better served by being around their peers. And so what we do is we bring everybody into here uh, for our our singing and just the first part of our services. And then at kind of our prayer into this time um, for the 6th through 12th graders who want to go into into the Gospel Project study. um, They'll go into the student center, and that's where you'll pick them up afterwards. So if that caught you off guard today, that's what we're doing on Sunday mornings going forward. And, and again, whatever serves your family best, just wanted you to know if you've got a 6th to 12th grader on Sunday mornings, um, they have an option to be in Bible study with their peers after we get done singing in and here. And we'll keep doing that going forward. So in the Gospel of John, here's something really cool I thought of today. Um, we're in chapter 19, so we've got like 19, 20, and 21. When we finish up this series, we will have read through the Gospel of John together out loud. And I think that's super cool that we've been able to move through an entire book of the Bible, 21 chapters, together on Sunday mornings. This is not the only way we teach and preach here at Solid Rock, but it is one of the primary ways we do is we open God's Word, we read it, we let it speak, and then we apply it to our lives. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We've made it to a place in the Gospel of John where things are really beginning to get intense. And now Jesus is no longer talking about what is going to happen. He's now walking in the suffering that he has been talking about. And now he's walking in the suffering that has been predicted by the prophets for hundreds of years. And so we see that clearly now in what we just read, the intensity of of where we are in the gospel story. And so we're going to start in verse 1 together this morning. Uh, one through five, and then we're going to stop and talk about it. So, the 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 trial um, portion of Jesus's suffering is done, and now we've made it to the sentencing part of uh, Jesus's uh, trial um, and inquiry um, process. And so, starting in verse one, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him or covered him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Now, what John is describing to us, if we start with the first part that Pilate had Jesus flogged, this is the kind of the normal sentencing that any prisoner or criminal would have faced. What happens after that is very specific to Jesus. Okay, and what we're going to see today is all throughout this sentencing part of Jesus' trial is that Pilate is going to be wrestling with what to do. Like he just said, see, I'm bringing him out. I find no guilt in him, and yet Pilate just had him beat. And we're going to see this back and forth with Pilate not knowing what to do with Jesus. So we think about the idea of being flogged, and maybe you're familiar with what's being described here, but it's incredibly brutal. So what would happen in a flogging is, first of all, the instrument of choice was this kind of a, a whip-like instrument that had usually nine leather strips coming off the end of it, and at the end of each of those leather strips was something really sharp like a piece of bone or a piece of like flint or stone, and oftentimes this instrument was referred to as the cat of nine tails because of what would happen during the flogging is these soldiers you would be bound so if you think about the scene in The Passion of the Christ, if you've seen that, it's a fairly accurate depiction of this where, where Jesus is kind of bound to, I think, like a stump or some type of heavy object where he can't move. And there's a, usually a, a Roman soldier who's really, really strong who takes this instrument and begins to beat um, the convicted on the back. So you can imagine just those leather strips hitting the bare skin, just the pain that would come out immediately. But it wasn't just the leather strips that caused pain. The, as this leather would wrap around the, the, the back and the torso into the rib cage, oftentimes the sharp objects would stick. And when they would pull the, the, this instrument back, it would just rip the flesh. So that's why I had the, the name Cat of Nine Tails, like a cat's claw. It would just rip, you know, up to nine times just as rips across the back of the person being beat with it. The idea behind this kind of torture was we want to inflict as much pain as we can without putting the person to death. And so oftentimes they would, they, would, they would flog a person 39 times because they believe kind of superstitiously. If we go to 40, they're going to die. So we'll go right up to that point. But what oftentimes would happen is that, in fact, the person would die. Like the blood loss, just the, the pain, the intensity of what was going on. Oftentimes it would be too much and, and they would go into respiratory or heart failure and they would actually die just in the flogging portion of the sentencing. So we read that Pilate had Jesus flogged, right? Now in our minds we're beginning to realize what that actually meant and what that was that Jesus was enduring. And so you can imagine what Jesus' back looked like. 39 lashings with this, this instrument of torture. His back was just torn to shreds. Bleeding profusely both the bruise from the whip and then the lacerations from the sharp objects his back was just shredded now what happens after this is really unique to jesus it wasn't common it was common to want to humiliate people who were being tortured or punished but the specific details of what happened is very specific to jesus so the, t- the soldiers are going to twist together um, a crown of thorns. And so this is not, uh, this is not like briars you find in Texas. Like those can be really painful and irritating. We're talking about lethal objects, these little, these thorns that were like daggers, very, very sharp, two, three, four, sometimes even longer than that, inches long, diameter of a pencil up to the diameter of your pinky. These are the thorns uh, that these soldiers have taken and spun them around in a circle over and over again to kind of make a a crown and they didn't just place it on Jesus's head like they pressed it in come what may some piercing the skin some grazing the skin just sharp objects all around his head if you ever had like a a cut or laceration on the head you know it's going to bleed dramatically right so you can just begin to imagine like not only is Jesus' back torn to shreds, his face, like his hair, his face is all just kind of matted and covered with blood. They didn't stop there, though. We keep reading. Uh, not only did they put the thorn on, um, we read here that the soldiers were striking him, more than likely punching him in the face, and so he's getting beaten. His eyes are probably beginning to swell up. I'm sure the cartilage in his nose is, is beginning to swell up and And so you can begin to kind of get a mental picture of somebody that's kind of hard to recognize. This is what's happening to Jesus right now. The Gospel of Matthew adds to that um, in uh, Matthew 27, 30 and says, And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And so... Um, the reed was this kind of this kind of makeshift scepter kind of making fun of the idea that he might be a king or he claimed to be king and they put a reed in his hand just and then so they've taken it from him now and they began to beat him in the head with it so he's got blood he's got bruises he's got torn flesh and add to that you've got people spitting on him like spit And then they take this robe which was meant to humiliate him and make fun of him for his claim to be a king and just think about that the pain of taking that heavy robe and just putting it on that back that's just torn to to shreds again the purple symbolizing royalty and yet everything about this man did not look like royalty but i think probably the most painful thing about it all is what the jews are doing do you see what the jews are doing here Verse 3, came up to him. That verb is in, in the tense that means they kept coming up to him. That's how it should be translated. They kept coming up to him and saying, hail, king of the Jews. So it wasn't like one soldier came up to him and said, oh, hail, the king of the Jews. Like, oh, that was funny. Like, they just kept coming up to him, one after another, making fun of him and humiliating him. I don't know how bad you've experienced that in your own life. There's a good chance everybody in the room knows what it's like to be made fun of and how painful that is, right? Because on one level, you oftentimes when you're made fun of, it, it brings your weaknesses to the surface and people are pointing at them, but it's deeper than that. Why? Because when you're made fun of, it, it feels like rejection, right? It feels like these people don't love me they don't accept me they don't want me whether it's your friend in the seventh grade or it's the scene right here of all this pain that jesus is enduring physically he's going through emotional agony right now when i read this i step back and i begin to ask questions like why (laughs) why is this necessary is this the plan of God gone wrong? Maybe God just sent his son to earth to die on a cross and, and somehow things got derailed or messed up or mixed up and now here Jesus is going through this immense suffering on accident or wasn't meant to be this way. And so I step back and I, I go back to the prophecies of the Messiah who is to come. And we go all over the Old Testament, we get these indicators these prophecies pointing the people of God forward. This is what the Messiah will look like. This is what the Messiah will do. Here's how you know when the Messiah comes. A lot of places we could go in the Old Testament. We could go to King David himself. We could go to David's writings in the Psalms. We could go all the way back to the book of Genesis. But one of the most vivid places to go is the prophet Isaiah. For whatever reason, God chose to give Isaiah a really detailed prophecy Of what was to come. And one of the things that God shows Isaiah is really a description of this moment. So there's a string of chapters in Isaiah from like 50 all the way through 53. Where he's writing down what what the Holy Spirit is showing him. And he's describing this scene to the people of God. So that when it happens, they'll recognize it. Listen to just a few verses from Isaiah. I'll start in Isaiah 50. This is from the perspective of the Messiah, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting so imagine jesus on his throne eternally the father the son and the spirit spirit go to isaiah and show him what is to come and jesus says this write this down isaiah i gave my back to those who strike me i gave my face to those who who pull out the beard And I didn't hide from their disgrace, even from their spitting on me. That's like six, seven hundred years before Jesus comes to earth. You flip forward to Isaiah 52. Verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So Isaiah is describing this scene, saying his his appearance is going to be marred so bad, he's not even going to look like a man. And then we get to the next chapter, chapter 53, where we not only get more vivid description, God gets to a place where he says, this is why it's happening to him. In Isaiah 53, I'll just pick this up. Uh, The second part of verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Everything about the suffering Messiah is going to cause us to want to turn away. Yeah, they're going to dress him up with a robe and put a crown of thorns on his head, but he's not going to look like royalty, and he's not going to look like beauty. It's going to have the opposite effect. We're going to want to turn away from this suffering Messiah. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. Oh, hell, the king of Jews. Let's make fun of him. Isaiah says you'll know the Messiah because he'll actually be rejected. He'll feel that rejection that comes with humiliation. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, spitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And listen, with his wounds we are healed. It's the wounds of Jesus that heals our wounds. Why would he endure such suffering? How could he just stay there and take it? Why is the Father allowing it to get so brutal and so bloody? And Jesus, the Spirit, telling Isaiah, here's why because it's through my wounds that my people are going to be healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what's happening to Jesus. That's why it's so brutal. The Lord is laying on him the iniquity of us all. And then we get to verse 10, and God begins to give us hints about the why. Why is this happening? Why is this such... Such a dramatic scene of suffering, God. Our stomachs are turning. We want to hide our faces from. We don't even want to look at it. In verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is not the plan of God gone wrong. Pilate is not driving the scene here. The Jews are not driving the scene. God the Father is driving the scene, and he tells us, almost 700 years before it happens, when you see this happen, it is the Father's will to crush him. Why? Why? The rest of verse 10 says this. He, being God the Father, put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt... That's what's about to happen. Jesus is about to become an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So we begin to get this beautiful picture of flourishing and the followers of Jesus flourishing that somehow out of this brutal brutal suffering, the Messiah will live on. The Messiah will flourish and so will his offspring. So will those who follow him. So will those who come after him. That somehow the brutality of this scene leads to the glory of God and to our good in such a way that Jesus willfully walks into the suffering. And it pleased the Lord to crush him because something good was coming out of it. I think this... On one hand, it helps begin to answer questions, but on the other hand, it leads to a deeper question of why. Well, why did it need to be so brutal? What's going on here? And what do we see here? And we see hints of this even in the humiliation and the torture, like they're putting a crown of thorns on his head. You know the first place that thorns are mentioned in the Bible? Genesis chapter 3 as a part of the curse of sin and death Adam and Eve have sinned God told them if you sin you will surely die God calls them out and says why are you hiding and he says listen Adam and Eve here's what life is going to be like under the curse of death now he tells Eve about childbirth he tells Adam listen let me give you some examples Adam now you're going to have to work super hard just to put food on the table and you're going to have to wrestle with thorns Like just to put bread on the table, you're going to have to get bloody. You're going to encounter pain. You're going to encounter hardship. You're going to want to quit. From this point forward, the curse of death means everything in life from a human perspective is going to be hard. And this is the beginning of the curse of sin and death. I want you to think about this for a minute. Everything that you experience in life that is painful, that is hard, anything in your life that you experience that doesn't include joy and peace and security, and think of the fruit of the Spirit, is the result of the curse of sin and death. And so we think about that and we take a step back and go, wow, something bigger is happening here in this suffering. Pilate is definitely not driving the scene. The Jews are not driving the scene. God the Father is driving the scene and he's doing something bigger than what I've previously thought. It's so much bigger than the suffering of Jesus in this moment. The suffering of Jesus is connected to Adam and the suffering of Jesus is connected to me. In the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul addresses this in a helpful way. In Galatians chapter 3, I'll just read verse 13, but listen to what Paul says about the suffering of Jesus and the connection to us. Here's what Paul says. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's Genesis 3. That's the fall. That's the curse of sin and death. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by what? Becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone hanging on a tree. So what Jesus is doing here is he is willfully and obediently stepping into the curse of man. Every act of brutality against him is evidence of the fallen world around us. From the physical pain and torture to the internal emotional agony. This feeling of isolation, separation from the Father. Nobody likes me. Nobody accepts me. Nobody wants me. He's experiencing it all right here in this moment. The full weight of the curse of sin and death is on him. And what Paul is saying is that he stepped into the curse to undo the curse for us. He became a curse to undo the curse for us. And so it's not just a death. It is a death immersed in the suffering of the curse of sin and death. And Isaiah, as he's looking at it, inspired by the Holy Spirit he's looking forward like 700 years and he's seeing images of it he's like listen people of God you're going to want to hide your face from it you're not going to want to make eye contact w- with the Messiah you're going to look at him he's not even going to look like a man at some point point." and so Pilate brings Jesus bloody beaten swollen bruised humiliated and he, he he walks him out in front of the people he's drawing back the curtains on Isaiah 53 saying behold the man look. Now, in his heart, we know his desire was to appease the Jews. He was hoping that this would let him off the hook. He found no guilt in him, and yet he had him punished anyway. He was hoping the Jews would go, okay, that's enough. Thank you. But what he didn't realize, what the Jews didn't realize, and what oftentimes we fail to see, is this wasn't happening to appease the Jews. This was happening to satisfy the longing of our souls. This was happening to undo everything that's broken within us. Can we talk for a broken about brokenness for a minute, church? You don't fully know and believe the gospel until the gospel has met you in your brokenness. We talked about this last week. If you just skip over the brokenness to try to get to the Jesus loves me part, you're gonna you may become a fan of Jesus. It's very unlikely you'll become a follower. And, and then what's gonna happen is. Something hasn't changed within you, and you're going to look around the church, and you're going to see people who are walking in these authentic relationships with Jesus, and you're going to want it, but you're going to be embarrassed and shameful, so you're going to pretend like you have it? It's what we call like, the church culture. Listen, until Jesus has met you and your real brokenness, you have not met the Messiah. He stepped into the curse to undo the curse for you. Go back to John 19. We can can read in John's description here, Pilate is confused, he's in turmoil. Verse six says, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. That's not enough, Pilate, do more. And Pilate said to them, Look, he's trying to get out of it. Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to be he ought to die because he has made himself son of God. And look at what Pilate does. What happens to Pilate? When Pilate heard this, what happened? He was more afraid. Pilate's trembling here. He does not know what to do with Jesus. He's not guilty, they want him put to death. Now they're saying that he's claiming to be the son of God? Something There's a battle inside of Pilate. We don't know what it is. It could be, it could be that he's beginning to sense that there's something different about Jesus. Maybe Jesus is, is deity in some form. He's, something about Jesus doesn't sit well with me. Matthew tells us in Matthew 27 that even Pilate's wife is is experiencing this inner kind of conflict and turmoil on what to do with Jesus. This is uh, Pilate's wife. This is Matthew 27. Besides, uh, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, uh, to Pilate, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So Pilate and his wife, they're like, what do we do with this man? And the Jews are just screaming, just kill him, crucify him, put him to death. Verse 9 says, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? Help me understand what's going on. Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus said to him. Now, I don't feel like Jesus is being arrogant. I feel like Jesus is being loving. But Jesus answered him and said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Pilate, you're not driving this train. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. We're going to just continue on in verse 12 as we think about what this means for us today. Verse 12 says this From then on, Pilate sought to release him. He was looking for any way to get out of this deal, any way he could, any exit strategy. He he wanted to let him go. But the Jews cried out, listen to these words. These are Jewish religious leaders. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So then Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. That was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Let's stop here for just a minute. Man, there's so much. I don't even know if irony is the right word. So much paradox going on here. Pilate is sitting on The judgment seat, sentencing the only man worthy enough to sit on a judgment seat. Like, think about that. Like, I see Jesus, like, enduring all this agony, and he's looking at Pilate, and Pilate's sitting on his seat. Right? Like, just to lighten the mood for a moment, like, it brings to mind that scene from Tombstone, uh, you, if you've seen the movie where uh, it's White Earp and he walks into the Oriental and there's this guy being a jerk at the card table and he walks over to him, you know what I'm talking about? Just in authority and he's standing there and he, it's Johnny Tyler and he looks up at White Earp and he's like, Can I help you? And what, is, what, is, what does White say? Yeah, just to let you know you're sitting in my chair. Like, that's what I want Jesus to do here, right? Pilate, you're sitting in my chair. But he doesn't, he stays obedient to the course. The only one worthy enough to sit in the judgment seat is making himself subject to the judgment seat. And Pilate's freaked out about it. Some doesn't say, some's not right about this. His own wife comes to him like, you've got to get out of this deal. I had a dream about this righteousness. You need to get out of this deal. But he doesn't. He says to the Jews, he brings Jesus out. And this time he doesn't say, behold the man. What does he say? Behold your king. And this resulted in something I want you to see, verse 15. They cried out, away with him. Away with him. Get him out of our face. We don't want to look at him. Crucify him. shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, and this is where we're going to land today, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Now, this is just, wow. In some ways, this is the final rejection of the Jews, the final rejection of the Messiah by the Jews. This is like the nail in the coffin. They've rejected Jesus up to this point, but like this is the final statement. He's not our king. But it's more than that. It's actually a statement of blasphemy. Because see, under Roman law, Caesar held the place of deity. And Tiberius the emperor was the current Caesar. To recognize him as king was to recognize him as deity. These Jewish religious leaders, they're not only rejecting God's Messiah, they're declaring their allegiance and their worship of Caesar. crazy. They want Jesus killed so bad that they're going to walk away from the God of Israel to declare Roman Caesar as their king. We have no other king. I want to land here. And what I want to do is I'm actually going to read a couple of statements for you to think about. Because, see, in the same way that Pilate doesn't fully know what to do with Jesus, I think a lot of us in the world today don't know what to do with Jesus. I think there are those who despise Jesus and reject him. The moment somebody knows you're a Christian, they reject you, right? But then there are others in the world that we live in, especially in the United States, who, 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 who like the identity of being a Christian. They're, they're big fans of Jesus, but they're not quite followers of Jesus, okay? And so there's a difference between seeing Jesus as this noble man who endured a dramatic beating to sacrifice himself for me. That's moving, but that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is the king of the universe is humbling himself to take on the form of a servant to willfully walk through and endure the most dramatic, the most painful, the most humiliating suffering known to man, only to be crucified, buried in a tomb, and to rise on the third day. And what happens when our king makes himself a servant, endures suffering, dies on a cross, and buried and resurrects is this. On the third day, the curse was broken. It's, you know, we just saying, the grave no longer has claim on me. That's true, but it's bigger than that. The curse of sin and death no longer has claim on me. So now, those who are saved are living in a world that's fallen and broken, but we're doing so with the fruit of the kingdom. We have access now to joy, to peace, to security, to belonging, right? We still have to live and function in the broken, fallen world. But now we have access to the fruit of the kingdom. Why? Because Jesus is our king. Listen, the resurrection is where Jesus defeats your worst enemies. Jesus defeats sin and death at the resurrection. Think about that. You and your own strength can do nothing to shake the shackles of sin in your own life. You've tried it. Anybody who's ever prayed (laughs) has tried it. Forgive me for this sin. I'll never do it again. Right? You white knuckle it. Maybe you come to the altar. You grab an elder a pastor. You're like, I want this removed from my life. I'm just never going to do it again. And then you find yourself what? Doing it again. That's evidence that you can't overcome sin on your own. You need somebody to rescue you from that. Now, death is the harder of the two topics, but it's easier to see. We can't overcome death, can we? The greatest medicine, the greatest sciences out there today cannot bring something not alive back to life. Like, you've got a moment of just, like, seconds once the heart stops beating to bring somebody back. Jesus is defeating those two enemies for you. He steps into the curse. He goes to the grave. He endures everything that it means to be under the curse of sin and suffering, to rise again on the third of the day to break the curse for you. That's why it's so brutal. That's why it's so bloody. And that's why it's so painful. I want to land here today and just ask you a couple of questions for you to take some inventory on who Jesus is to, for you and to you. Is Jesus just the man who suffered? Or is he your king who died for you? here's some questions to think about or to ask yourself. If you get emotional when you sing about Jesus, and there's nothing wrong with that, but have no desire to obey his commands and live his mission in your everyday life, then you may be beholding the man, but not the king. If you love the idea of Christianity you love wearing the Christian t-shirts and advertising for Jesus on your car and your Facebook page and your Instagram and all your social media but you fail to invest time into others by serving others and and helping people grow as disciples in Christ and you may be beholding the man but have yet to behold him as your king If coming to church is something that you do when it's easy and it fits into the schedule and it's not something you're excited about doing, now when you miss, we don't want you to feel guilt or shame. We just want you to know you're missed, right? But there should be something exciting about coming together, something you're looking forward to that's drawing you into the space. But if you're thinking, well, I do church when it fits, and when I miss it, I don't really miss out on anything, then, then you may just simply be beholding the man and not beholding your king. That's why we gather together, like to to worship our king. And then last and not least, if you've embraced enough of Jesus to make you feel better about yourself, but not enough of Jesus to actually begin to transform who you are on the inside, you may be a fan and not a follower. You may have beholded the man, but you've yet to behold him as king. And so I want to leave you with those questions just to kind of think about your own journey the desire would be for us to move from not quite sure about Jesus to embracing him, to hailing him as king, that we would worship the one who was rejected. We would embrace the one who was disgraced and rejected, and we would make him our king. I'm going to pray for us now, and our prayer partners will be um, available, as they always are, to pray with you. And something's stirring in you today, and maybe you're like not sure what to do with it, come grab a prayer partner some kind of heavy burden you've got, grab, grab a prayer partner, grab one of our elders. Um, our elders will be out in the, in the commons area. They've got lanyards on to kind of identify them so you know who they are. Questions about church, questions about the Bible, questions about Jesus. Grab one of our elders. Just be honest about where you are. I'm gonna pray for us now and our worship team's gonna come back out. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this very vivid and powerful scene, um, this hard to fathom suffering of your son. And Father, in it we see all the rejection, all the accusations, and we see the vicious anger, but we also see Pilate struggling to know what to do with Jesus. So Father, I'm praying today that you would speak to us. Help us see the king who humbled himself to become a suffering servant for us. Help us to accept the king who was rejected. Help us to worship the king who was despised. Lord Jesus, you are our king. Just pray now, Father, that your Holy Spirit would move through our hearts and speak to each of us. And in that, you would draw us close to you and close to one another. We pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.